0: So, what does the word tolerance mean to you? I um, I looked it up and it says it's the ability or willingness to tolerate the existence or opinions or behavior that one dislikes or disagrees with. And I think to myself, yeah, you know, I'm a fairly tolerant person. I don't know if you you would say the same. Yeah, I'm a fairly tolerant person. Well, I did think that. Um, And later in the preach, I'll tell you what happened. But was Jesus tolerant? Well, in many ways he was. He was tolerant of his disciples when they made mistakes, lacked faith, or squabbled over who was greatest. He was tolerant of the crowds when they misunderstood him. But at other times, he wasn't so tolerant. So when he called the Pharisees white and sepulchres, snakes and vipers, when he overturned the money changers' tables in the temp- temple courts, doesn't sound quite so tolerant, does it? And there was one thing in particular that he was absolutely clear and uncompromising about. And that was that there is only one way to salvation. There's only one path. And that's through Jesus himself. Now, for many today, that isn't a particular popular message. Is it because we like to have options and we like to have choices? And we like to find something that kind of suits me. And that's the world that we live in. We all have lots of options and choices. And for many, Jesus is only acceptable if he's just another good man among many. But Jesus was clear and unapologetic about who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. Luke 22:70 says, Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And he was also clear about his purpose. John 14.6 is the Gospel of John, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I'm preaching through one... Well, I'm not doing all of it, but we've been preaching through 1 John. And um, it's kind of got a bit out of order, so you'll have to forgive us for that. I think the last one is tonight, because Dave Webster's going to be doing um, his preach on 1 John 5. And actually, I'd just like to encourage you... um, if you haven't listened to all of them, just listen to the podcast. Just read through 1 John from you know, chapter 1 right through to chapter 5. Because it's a book that absolutely one bit leads on to another. And you have to get the sort of context of the whole thing. And there's just so much in it. I'd really recommend that. But in his letter, John is equally clear and uncompromising. Because 1 John was written partly to dispel the doubts about who Jesus really was. And again, I I think Dave Webster mentioned this when he was preaching on the first two chapters of 1 John. But some false teaching had entered the church then, which denied Christ's full humanity. Christ's humanity was denied in two ways. Some said that Christ only seemed to have a body, but it was actually an illusion. Which might sound, sound a bit odd to us, but some people just couldn't comprehend that God could come and dwell in a human body, that God could suffer, that God could feel hunger and thirst and cold and heat. And so they kind of got around that by thinking, well, okay, it's God, but the body's not really there. It's just an illusion. And then some others said that the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at his baptism and left him before he died. So again on the cross before Jesus died, they thought, no, God couldn't go through that, so he must leave at that point. But John utterly rejects those views. Why? Well, John had lived with Jesus, he'd travelled with Jesus, he'd watched him heal the sick and perform miracles, he'd talked with him, he'd been taught by him, and he'd stood at the cross with Mary and watched him die. John knew he had a body, He'd seen his suffering and then he'd been to the empty tomb and he'd seen him risen from the dead and he'd received what Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost. See, John knew who Jesus was, fully God and fully man, the Messiah, who had paid the price for our sins, defeated death and ushered in the kingdom of God so that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life and we get much of that in the first two chapters of John but I'm preaching on chapter three this morning and you can't take it on its own you have to have it standing all that stuff but John goes on to develop another theme in chapter three can we have it up uh, on the back if that's possible yeah in chapter three and then on in chapters four and five John has another theme it's the theme of love and I would say that if you look at the five chapters as a whole, love is the defining message of 1 John. John begins with a very important word. It's, um, in this translation, it says see. But in some translations, it has the word behold. Because actually, you know, it's more than just seeing. We can just say, oh, yeah, you know, I, um, I see that the carpet needs cleaning this morning. It, it doesn't, sorry. But... Um, <laughs> Mike Small will be very unhappy when I say that. But you know what I mean? Or, or I can see that it's a sunny day outside. Or, you know, I can see that um, the stewards will look very smart this morning. Whatever it is. But it's much more than that. Because that word, see or behold, it means look, pay attention. And most importantly, become acquainted with by experience. In other words, experience this. And he says, see What great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. This is the Father's love, the greatest love given to us through Jesus, love with the power to make us his children. The Father's love for us is is active and powerful, and we're meant to experience it, and it should constantly amaze us. So what does it mean to be the children of God? and be loved by the Father. Well, when I was in my teens, and that was a long time ago, but you, there used to be these posters and cards, and some of you might remember these, and they'd be two cute little people, and it would say, love is, and then it would say, love is, you know, giving everyone your last roller, or whatever, whatever it is. There'd be some little kind of phrase that went with love is. You know, love, is, love never gives up, something like that. And it was kind of nice, but it was kind of limited, really. But the Father's love is different. The Father's love isn't limited. And I kind of came up with this list, and you can add many things to it. God's love is perfect, faithful, unconditional, forgiving, all-encompassing, holy, endless, sacrificial, strong, enduring, redeeming, everlasting, um, overflowing, inspiring, hope-filled, gracious, and so much more. I mean, that... That's all I came up with, but you could add the same number again if you sit down and think about it. See, it knows no boundaries, it knows no limits, it has no boundaries and it knows no limits. There are no limits to the active, powerful love of God that we are meant to experience. Do you know that? It should really do something in here, shouldn't it? In our hearts. That perfect, faithful, unconditional, forgiving, all-encompassing, holy, endless, sacrificial, strong, enduring, redeeming, everlasting, lavish, overflowing, inspiring, hopeful, gracious, love. I thought I might try and learn those by heart, but I, you know. (laughs) If it doesn't, then have we stopped seeing? Have we stopped experiencing? And maybe this morning, you know, some of you need to reconnect with the Father's love. Or maybe some of you have never experienced that love. And you need that for the first time. You need to connect with that love for the first time. In John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12, John says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Our enemy does not want us to believe that we have the right to become the children of God. He wants to tell us that we're not good children, we're bad children. That why would God want us in his family? Why would he want us as his children? But God has given us the right to um, become his children. When we chose to believe in his son Jesus, that he died for us so that our sins could be forgiven, then we're born again into his family. We become his children, his beloved sons and daughters, and we can experience his love. Being his children means that we have a father. And again, you know, however good your earthly father is or was, he's only human. But our heavenly father is different. Our heavenly father has unlimited resources. He never makes mistakes. He plans only for our good. He'll never let us down and he's able to meet every need we have. Every spiritual need and also our practical needs. And I know sometimes that can be hard to hold on to when we're going through difficult times, but he is a good father. He is always a good father. We like to um, share testimonies here, don't we, of the goodness of God. And I know that if I was to ask you, lots of you would be able to come up with the amazing things that God has done in your life recently. But God is doing that right across his church and right across the world. And um, I just found a couple of um, stories from um, the Life Vineyard Church where people were sharing what God has done in their, in their life. And these, are, these are practical things that God can do. So here's a short one, first of all. I had about less than five pounds in my bank account to last me for the next week until I got paid. I was praying and coming to the end of my 24-hour fast. Obviously, this is what you have to do. um, And a guy comes to the door with 20 quid and gave it to me saying, God told me to give this to you. And then this one, I love this one. Our house. It's a good few years ago now. In 2000, we lived in a small terrace and wanted a bigger house so our girls could have a room each. We started to look before we'd put our house on the market. We looked at only a handful of houses when we saw this one. As we walked in, I felt God say to me, you can have this if you like it. We did like it. The house was slightly down on its luck, but we knew it could be perfect for us. However, the lady that showed us around said something like, "'I don't know why they sent you. I've, had, "'I've got three people interested in it already.' "'So we left, and I thought maybe I'd heard wrongly. "'An hour or so later, at our old home, "'we received a phone call from the estate agent. "'Could the lady whose house we just looked at view our house?' "'We said, it's not on the market yet, but she can. "'So the lady visits. Turns out she's downsizing. "'The lady walks into our kitchen.' and sees on our fridge a note saying, Trust in the Lord with all your might, and lean not on your own understanding. And she stops in her tracks. She says, I was given that verse at church last Sunday. She loved our house. To cut a long story short, we ended up swapping houses. For many years she lived in our old house, and we are still in hers. It's been the perfect house for us, so God provided for both of us. Yes, a year later the housing market went crazy and we couldn't have afforded you to buy our house. God's timing is perfect. He is a good father and he knows what we need. And being children of God, we don't just have a heavenly father, we also have a family. Because we're children of God within a family. And you know, don't you, that your blood relations, through the blood of Jesus, you are his family, the family of God. And we can't say, well, I'll have God, but I won't have the family. Because whether you like it or not, you're stuck with this lot here. (laughs) And, you know, there's that phrase that you can't choose your relations, but you can choose your friends. Well, I'd say, you know, sometimes in church we think, well, I can choose my friends. And okay, I know that you'll have people that you're more friendly with than others in church that you know better and so on. But actually, they're also your family. All of these people here are your family, so you can't choose them either. But, But God knows best and he's put you in the right family for you so if he's called you here then you're in the family that he wants you in and you have a part to play in that and as well as a family we also have an inheritance if you look at verse 2 i promise i'm not going to take hours to get to this it's going to be quite a short preach but in verse 2 there it says this dear friends now we are children of god and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we often say, another thing that we say a lot here at Eastgate, isn't it, is that there's always more. There's more to know, there's more to experience, there's more to come. John knew the more. What we will be hasn't yet been fully shown, but one day we will be just like him. Not clones' mind, we'll still be ourselves, but our character And our nature will be made perfect as we become like him. And we're on a journey right now, aren't we? Of becoming more like him. And sometimes, you know, I think, oh gosh, am I ever going to learn this? Or am I ever going to change in that attitude? Or am I ever going to... It's a journey I'm on. I know I'm not there yet. But actually, one day, it's part of my inheritance to know that as his child, I will see him and I will be just like him. It's very important that we start by understanding this great love that the Father has for us and its power. This amazing love that made us his children and put us in a family and has given us so much. Because it underpins everything that John is saying in his letter. And we have to understand the rest of this chapter in the light of it. So, remembering that God's perfect and powerful love underpins all the rest, John goes on to speak about sin. Now, sin isn't always a very popular word today, is it? And people have a kind of funny attitude towards it. And sometimes we have a fear that if we, when we're talking to non-Christians, if we talk about sin, they're not going to understand and it might put them off. But actually what sin means in in this place is is it means to miss miss the mark, the standard of perfection established by God and evidenced by Jesus. And we all know that we miss the mark. And then we get to verses four and, uh, between 4 and 14, and they can seem a bit confusing. So let's just see. If we can see verse 6, if we can move on to the next one. Right, okay. So here we go. In verse 6, it says, Everyone who resides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him nor known him. Okay, so let's just look on to verse 8. We might need to go up one more. And we get there? Oh, yeah. okay. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the, sin, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then it says in verse 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. Okay, hang on a minute. So on this hand, I've got everyone resides in him, does not sin. And on this hand, I've, I've got, well, if we came to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Because we all sin. So how does that work? Well, of course, we do sin. But these are occasional acts. They're things that we do sometimes that are not right. We know that. But what we don't do is live lives of continual sin. Because God's love for us sent Jesus to die for our sin and make us righteous. Although we can act in a sinful or unrighteous manner, it's not who we are. We believe in him and we know him, so we gain his righteousness and we're seen by God as saints, not sinners. We're righteous not because of anything we've done or not done, but because of what Jesus did and our faith in him. So Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And although um, it, it seems sometimes that we sin. We have that seed within us, that righteousness within us because we've been born of God. In Jesus, we are righteous. But having said that, it doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously because ultimately sin is an attack on our relationship with God. We are meant to live up to who God says we are. We are saints, not sinners. And grace says we don't have to, but love says we'll want to. Grace says you aren't saved by what you do, but love says my desire is to run the race to the best of my ability. In Philippians, 1 Philippians 3.12, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do I think that Paul was unsure of his salvation? No, I don't. I don't think it was about that. I think for Paul it was about, yeah, I know I'm safe, but I want to do the best I can to be the person that God has called me to be. I want to live up to that. I want, at the end of the race, I want God to look at me and say, well done, you've done a great job. And I want to take hold of all the opportunities that he gives me. The last section of 1 John 3 is about love for one another. Because of the greater love we've been given... John encourages us to love our Christian family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we know from reading um, the New Testament, it's not just our Christian family. We're called to love our neighbor as well. We're called to love others. And in verse 13, is that one on there? Can we go up to 13? Thank you. Okay. So verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Now, I have three boys, which probably most of you know by now, um, ranging between 19 and 28. And when they were growing up, I used to constantly say to them, out there in the world, there are going to be people that don't like you. There are going to be people that don't understand you. There are going to be people that don't support you or encourage you. It's not like that in this family. In this family we do support one another we do encourage one another we do love one another we do honor one another and actually it's one of the things i'm kind of most proud of because you know how it is with kids as when they grow up they have this constant habit of reminding you of the kind of things that you said that you wish you hadn't <laughs> or the things that you did that you wish you hadn't but this one they they quote it back to me and they say yeah because in the family we love one another we support one another we accept one another just as we are now they're human and they're boys so they do sometimes fall out but they work it out and i've seen that you know with the um, with all of them really that they when they when they're struggling they'll kind of go and talk to each other my youngest will go and talk to my oldest quite often so they've learned that the family is a safe place and actually it shouldn't be any different in this family we all have a part to play in honoring one another in supporting one another and in loving one another, and even being willing sometimes to make sacrifices for one another. Because the thing about love is it has to be worked out in our actions and the things we say, in the same way that God's love is active... Our love needs to be as well. So whether that's a kind and encouraging word, whether that's standing alongside someone, praying for them, um, whether it's about supporting someone, meeting a practical need, whatever that is, our love needs to be shown in actions. And I felt, you know, challenged recently in how much I do things from love. So do I want a word for someone because I love them or because I want to show off my prophetic skills, for example? And you can apply that to lots of things. And also, when my thoughts and my actions and my words are unseen, am I in my private life? Am I still demonstrating love? Am I living up to the person who God says I am? In verse 18, got that one up there? Verse 18. Yeah. John says this. He says, "Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth." Now, I have to say here, John is not saying that it doesn't matter what we say. Um, he's saying that our words don't mean anything if our actions don't demonstrate love. Jesus um, gave the ultimate demonstration of love when he laid down his life for us. And I often think of the, um, the verses in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, you know, without love we're like clanging cymbals. Our, our, our words only mean something when they're demonstrated with love. And the Bible tells us as well, doesn't it, that the tongue has the power of life and death. So we should be careful about what we say. But sometimes life is frustrating when things don't work out as we want or when we're disappointed or you know, when something kind of is difficult. And God really challenged me on that. This was when I discovered I'm not quite as tolerant a person as I thought I was. I am tolerant until I get in a car. I've got a feeling some of you can relate to that. (laughs) So, you know, I don't do anything terrible, but when someone cuts me up or, you know, drives badly or whatever it is, I have been known to say, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Or sometimes a little more than that. Um, (laughs) I know you're all just resonating with this. I can hear it. Anyway, um, and, and I might rant a bit. But, you know, some months ago, I did just that. And um, I was in the car by myself, but I tend to voice it out loud. Um, and God said to me, do you really want to speak that over that person? And I'm like, oh, you know when God really just kind of hits you one? And it's like, well, what do you want me to do? I want you to bless them. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and you know what? When we When we kind of say to God, okay... He gives us so many opportunities, doesn't he, to try it out? (laughs) So even this morning, I'm on my way to church this morning, and I come through the lanes. And and I kid you not, in front of me, on this narrow lane, there is a man on a tricycle. (laughs) I mean, who drives tricycles down the lanes? And if that was bad enough, just behind him, so right in front of me, was some very old classic car that obviously didn't go very fast. And I'm like, ah. Oh Father God, would you just bless that man in that <laughs> and if he really wants to drive a cycle a tricycle down the lane But do you see what I'm kinda of saying in all of that? You know it's been quite a challenge to me. I still go it eh, quite often and then oh and then I have to kind of think of how I'm gonna bless them. But it's a really, really good discipline because it's making me aware of how my kind of personal private life also needs to live up to that example that Jesus set. And in church, it can be true in church as well. So there are things that happen in churches that can be frustrating. In um, this service, you'll probably think about car parking. Car parking can be frustrating because we're short of space. And um, I just challenge you, When, you know, you kind of come and you're trying to squeeze in somewhere or they send you down the end of the car park or whatever it is, do you say to the person parking the car, thank you for your effort today. Thank you for getting us parked. Have a good day. And if you are following a tricycle down the lane and so you don't get here in time to get your kids into kids' work, what happens then? Do you bless the person that's registering them? Or are you cross because you can't get your children in? But it's a challenge for us. Loving one another in our words and our actions isn't a request as far as John is concerned. And as we get to the end of the chapter, verse 23, come up? okay? he says, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. We don't get that many commands, actually, in the New Testament, but this is one of them. It's his command. Believe in the name of his son and love one another. And then the chapter ends with one final verse as John brings us back to the confidence we should have that he does indeed live in us and we in him because of another outworking of that amazing, wonderful, incomparable love, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to finish this morning with my summary of 1 John 3 and I hope it encourages you. First, never stop being amazed at the power of the greatest love that made us children of God. We are children who know their father. We are children who will one day see Jesus, the one who made it possible face to face. And we are children who will be just like him. Two, never forget that your sins have been dealt with, all of them, completely, then, now, and forever. It's why Jesus came. You are no longer sinners, but saints, and you can live that way. Three, because that's true, never take sin in your own life lightly, but tell him that you're sorry. Ask him for the strength and wisdom to do it differently and aspire to run the race and to grow more like Jesus. Four, let your love for your Christian family be a defining characteristic in what you say and also in what you do. Because Jesus said in John 13:35, by this will everyone know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And last of all, we can be completely confident in him and his promises that he is in us and we are in him. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit with us who gives us the power to live as the children of God that we are. This is the power of a greater love. Amen.